page 57, session number 7 of 8, in the series, the title of which is on the screen behind me, What is the World Coming to? So I will review very briefly for you the first six of these sessions so that you know how session 7 fits in. But here's what's coming up. We are going to finish this series next Sunday. So that'll be session 8 of our eight-week series. And then two weeks from today is the observance of the ordinances that Christ gave to his church, those of communion and baptism. And the first hour, 9.30 that day, will be devoted entirely to observing the Lord's table, communion. And then after that, we'll have baptism, and then following the baptism, we'll have a celebration luncheon in, in this room. So that'll be two weeks from today. So, for the baptism, you need to, one, uh, be baptized if you haven't. And today is your final opportunity to let me know that you would like to talk about that. So, before you leave today, uh, see me, and we can set a time to talk about uh, you possibly being baptized two weeks from, from today. But the other thing is, when we have that luncheon, that celebration luncheon, we have food for that. And uh, the church provides the, the main dish uh, for that. But uh, folks in the church provide uh, most of the sides for that. So we have, every time we have a baptism, we have a sign-up sheet uh, with the categories of foods that, that we need for the baptism. And uh, you can put your name by one or more of those uh, if you're able to, to help with that. So that sheet is over here. So that's, that's the sheet, Okay. And if you can help with that, if you can't, obviously that's okay, but we want that to make the rounds so that uh, we have the, the food for the baptism. That's two weeks from today. This coming Wednesday, uh, and this is on the back of your notebook, uh, is our first of two backyard fellowships for the summer. So one in July and one in August. This Wednesday at 6.30 at the home of Larry and Wendy Mashinsky in New Boston. We've been over there before for some of our backyard fellowships, so some of you know where that is already. If you don't, there are maps to their place at the Resource Center, so pick one of those up. But it's this coming Wednesday, come one, come all. We always have a, a good time with that. And uh, there are some items we ask you to bring. The church is going to have the uh, hot dogs and the hamburgers for it, but we ask you to bring a side and a dessert and a, and a beverage, okay? So that's this coming Wednesday, and then two weeks from today is our, our baptism. And then long range, we've got the Mutt Hens game coming up at the end of August, for which you need to purchase tickets. Uh, and you need to let the uh, gals at the Resource Center know, uh, and they'll put your name down with your number, and then we'll get that number of tickets for you, okay? They're $9, $9 each. If you think about praying about, this coming Saturday is our outreach golf outing, uh, and so a number of our guys have signed up for that, are bringing guys to it, and so we hope for good weather and uh, a good time, but also I get opportunity to give a, a brief message to the guys, uh, and this will be our third annual and so this will be the third time we've been able to do that. So it is a good outreach opportunity for us. So pray for gospel success on that outreach opportunity this coming Saturday. All right, page 57, session 7. And as you see at the top there, this one is about heaven. In the prior six sessions, in session number one, we looked at the fact that history is, going to, is heading toward an appointed end, appointed by God. And so God has determined the end, the Bible tells us, from the beginning. From the very beginning, God has determined how it's going to turn out. And because he has determined how it's going to turn out, it requires that he control everything in between. 
So that's where we get the doctrine of God being sovereign, God having authority and control over all that happens in his, his world. So lesson one, uh, we saw that history and all events of history are all part of God's plan to bring to an appointed end. And so this, this class on the subject of what's the world coming to, well, it's coming to this appointed end that God has or- ordained. But God has told us some things that are going to happen in between. And so in lesson number two of your, of your notebook, we saw the next thing on God's prophetic predictive calendar, and that is something called the rapture. And these are all recorded, so if you weren't here for that, you have the notes and you can listen to the recording. The rapture, the taking of those who belong to Jesus from the earth to be with him, but life will continue on earth. And so session three was about what the Bible tells us regarding life on earth during the period that God's church has been removed. The rapture occurs and that inaugurates something called the the tribulation. And that lasts for, for seven years. And then session three, excuse me, session four, was about what happens after the tribulation. Christ returns. He returns with his, his armies. We would be included in that. He comes and he destroys his enemies in a battle called Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon. And then he establishes his kingdom. So session four was about the second coming, the final battle, and then the establishment of Christ's kingdom on earth. And then uh, in session five, we began to look at, as we are today, personal issues related to the end. Those prior lessons were about these, these large events, the rapture, tribulation, the, the kingdom. But then with session five, we started to look at how that affects you and, and me personally. Session five, we looked at uh, resurrection and the fact that we will have resurrection, resurrection bodies and what the Bible says about that. And then last week, we saw that every person, personally, is going to spend eternity in one of two places. Last week, we looked at hell. And a very difficult uh, lesson uh, it was, if you were here uh, with us last week, from the very outset, I said, sometimes we inject some levity into what we're talking about, but there's nothing that uh, is, is lighthearted at all, in the least, about the truth of an eternal punishment. And if you didn't get a chance to hear that lesson, I encourage you to listen to that because I I gave, I think, a cogent rationale for belief in uh, a place called hell. And that's an unbelievable thing for many people in our culture, even people in the church today. So I encourage you to listen to that. But today we look at, top of page 57, the other place that uh, folks will spend eternity. It will be either in hell or in heaven. And, uh, of course, we want that to be in in heaven. And the next week we will conclude our series in session 8. So top of page 57, heaven is one of the most popular teachings of the Bible. In fact, the idea of heaven is loved as much as hell is hated. In a strange irony, those who reject the doctrine of hell quite often embrace heaven. Others believe that heaven is the future home of all but the very worst of people. Of course, they define very worst by their own standards, as if they hold the keys to heaven and hell and can determine who goes there. Now, I'd like to take some time, and I'm going to spend a good bit of time here at the beginning with stuff that's not in your notes, because the stuff that's in your notes you can read. 
And so we'll kind of quickly scan through uh, the things that are in your notes. But I would like to explain that paragraph and these opening paragraphs uh, fairly thoroughly. Last week we saw that all people have a sense of justice. So that, as I pointed out last week, if you take the illustration of the most heinous human crime that can be committed, that of an adult taking advantage of a defenseless child, child molestation. And all of us have a sense of justice about that. That if someone engages in that with a defenseless child, we all believe that justice needs to be done. That person needs to be punished. And particularly if you think of someone who's a repeat offender, and then add to that someone who is an unrepentant repeat offender. I can't think of anyone who would say anything other than there is no hell hot enough for a person like that. That's what most people would say. In fact, it would be unjust if no punishment were served for a person who perpetrates such a thing. We all have that sort of sense of justice. But then last week we also pointed out that people object to hell for so-called lesser crimes because... We believe that crimes committed against people on the horizontal plane are the worst crimes that could be committed. And yet the Bible teaches that actually the worst crime in the universe is to reject the Lord your God. Or to put it another way, to fail to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. And so I tried to show last week that if we believe that, punishment for a crime, a heinous crime indeed, against human beings deserves something like hell. How much more does rejection of the God who made us deserve an eternal punishment? And the reason that we don't see that and the reason we have to be shocked out of our lethargy in how we see the, the crime of rejecting Jesus Christ is because we think in man-centered terms. We think in terms of what affects us, and what affects us are the worst possible things that could happen. And God says, no, this world is God-centered. It's centered on me. In the beginning, me. (laughs) In the beginning, God. And from him, and to him, and through him are all things, says Paul in Romans 11 and verse 36. It is about him, but we forget that. And if it's really about him, and it's really centered on him, and we fail then to embrace him and love him and live for the purpose for which he made us, we have committed cosmic treason, the highest crime that could possibly be perpetrated. And so, because we have this man-centered approach, the horizontal plane is much worse. The vertical thing, God will just have to deal with that. That's kind of the way we think about it. And so that's then how we logically come up with this idea in that first paragraph that only the very worst go to a place called hell. Our idea is like this. All are going to heaven unless you do something to forfeit it. Isn't that the way most people think? Everybody's going to heaven unless you do something, you know, really, really bad. And, of course, again, really, really bad means really, really bad to other people. If you're Hitler, 
you're not going to heaven. If you're Stalin, you're not going to heaven. If you're Saddam Hussein, you're not going to heaven. All are going to heaven, we think, unless you do something to forfeit that. But what does the Bible teach? The Bible teaches all are going to hell unless he does something to rescue us. But we forget that very easily, don't we? And we're so inundated and Oprahized with emotionalism and emotional responses that we think, you know, God couldn't possibly send somebody. I mean, you know, what's so bad about rejecting the God of the universe? <laughs> well, God says that's, that's the worst crime that can be committed. And therefore, the Bible teaches that all come into this world separated from God and are going to hell unless... Not we do something, but unless he does something to deliver us, to rescue us. But thankfully, he has, right? He has done something to deliver us, to rescue us. That's our good news message. But just bear in mind, dear friends, that that news is only good as it is seen against the backdrop of the true and yet bad news. That without this intervention of God and without this deliverance and rescue, then we are all on the broad road that Jesus called destruction. So since everyone thinks that they're going there, I mean, everybody thinks I'm going to heaven. That's the default. You go to heaven. And then there are a few exceptions for people going to hell. It's totally backwards from what the Bible teaches. But since everybody thinks that they're going to heaven, there's great interest then in heaven. And so that first paragraph, when we say it's one of the most popular teachings in the Bible, and then that second paragraph talks about books on the bestseller list. Why? Because everybody thinks they're going there. So I want to know plenty about this place that's going to be my, my future home. And the question is this. Yeah, people all think they're going there because of the logic that I mentioned. That's the default. Everybody goes to heaven. You have to do something to forfeit it. The question then is this. Where... Do I get my information about heaven? Where do I go to find out about heaven? Well, unfortunately, the place most people go to find out about heaven <laughs> is the same place they went to determine that everybody's going there. I mean, where did they get the idea that everybody's going there? Where'd you get that notion? It wasn't from the Bible. It was from people making it up. People just saying, this is what I think. So it should be no surprise to us then, that as those same people then describe this place to which supposedly everybody is going, with a few exceptions, that as they describe what it's like, the source of that information is going to be people giving their two cents about it. We make it up, or we listen to those and read those, who have made it up. And so the second paragraph on page 57. In fairly recent years, heaven has been the topic of books such as Betty Eady's Embraced by the Light that went to the top of the bestseller charts by talking about her near-death experiences. A more recent book is titled 90 Minutes in Heaven about a man who was supposedly killed in a head-on collision spent 90 minutes in heaven. The number 22 bestseller among religious books on Amazon 
In fact, Amazon shows more than 328,000 books and more than 21,000 music downloads on the topic of heaven. I mean, everybody's going there. So we want to know something about what it's like, but where do we get our information about what it's like? We sucked it out of our thumb. And so there's this infatuation with heaven, third paragraph. The problem is that people are learning about heaven from books, music, movies, conversations around the water cooler. That should not be a comma. That should be a period there. Now, you remember last week, if you were here, uh, two weeks ago, excuse me. Uh, you know, there's another book out there about, about someone who you know, died, spent some time in heaven, writes their descriptions of that. And I mentioned 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Paul, who wrote that, speaks of a man. Apparently, Paul was that man. And Paul speaks of a man who was caught up into the third heaven, the very abode of God. But he says in those verses, as I read for you two weeks ago, and there I observed things that I am not permitted to tell. And I just made the point a couple of weeks ago, Paul's not permitted to tell, but these other people are. I don't think so. And I tried to make the point then, and I want to reemphasize it now, that our information about the afterlife, whether heaven or hell, and our information, frankly, about any subject, ought to come from the authoritative source that God has given us, His book, His Word. In Luke chapter 16, you have Jesus giving the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man goes to hell, and the parable, Jesus says, the man lifted up his eyes, and he saw Lazarus with, with Abraham. And, and Lazarus, or excuse me, the rich man says to, to Lazarus, go back and tell my brothers not to come to this place. And Abraham responds to the rich man and says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not believe them, they will not believe, though one return from the dead. So I'm trying to break us of this notion that we need extra biblical information from people who supposedly had out-of-body, near-death experiences to tell us what heaven is like. Who is qualified to tell us about heaven? Paul said he could not talk about what he saw, but God has indeed given us information, and He has given us information in Scripture through the mediation of those who were, now these are two key words then, those who were His witnesses, and then those who gave testimony of what they witnessed. God has given us witnesses, and those witnesses have testified. Witness, testimony. And so I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about who those witnesses are. It's not the dude on the talk show. It's not the guy in the head-on collision. It's not the four-year-old who wrote the book or had somebody help them write the book. It's who are these witnesses that gave testimony. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. And if you don't, just write down Matthew 16 and verse 28, Matthew 16, 28, through 
chapter 17 and verse 5, Matthew 16, 28 through 17, 5. Now, we're going to read in just a moment, but here's what's going on. Jesus is gathered with his first followers, his disciples. And then he makes this, he makes this statement in the very last verse of chapter 16. He says, verse 28, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, and then that's the end of chapter 16. So that could be really confusing for a couple of reasons. One, the kingdom hasn't come yet. Kingdom's still future. So how is it that Jesus can say, some of you are not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? So that's one. And then the other thing, it's the last verse of chapter 16. Then you start chapter 17. And if you forget that there were no chapters and verses originally in the Bible, you could disconnect very easily verse 28 from verse 1 of chapter 17, and that would be a mistake. Because Jesus says, some of you standing here are not going to die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, and then verse 17, it just, or, or chapter 17, it just continues on. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Ah, some standing here, Peter, James, and John, are going to see Jesus in his glory. And he takes them, six days later, to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there they see him in all his glory. The Bible then tells us, goes on to tell us, they fell down and worshipped him. Verse 5 tells us this, While he was still speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to get your info from? Listen to him. And he has given witnesses who have provided testimony about what he did and said. And one of those witnesses, one of those guys who saw him coming in his kingdom at the Mount of Transfiguration was Peter, Peter, James, John. Now where is the testimony then of Peter about what they saw? Peter was a witness, but these witnesses have given testimony. Where's that testimony? Well, Peter has written a couple of letters in your Bible called Peter, appropriately. And he wrote two of them, so there's first and second. And if you were to turn to second Peter and chapter 1, you'll note what Peter says with regard to his testimony about what he witnessed. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. Peter says, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now, just when did that happen? <laughs> that happened in what was recorded in Matthew 17. And Peter says, we saw that. We, we're not making this up. This is not cle a cleverly invented story. We're not marketing a book. Any of that. But we saw it. And, and when we saw it, we heard this voice. And you read in Matthew 17 and verse 5, the voice of the Father saying, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Verse 18 now of 2 Peter chapter 1. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. And so God has chosen witnesses who have seen his glory, who have seen him later now raised from the dead. As a matter of fact, in order to be one of the appointed witnesses on behalf of Jesus, also known as the apostles, in order to be an apostle of Jesus, one of the things you had to have done was have seen him, witnessed him alive. Now, how do I know this? In Acts chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but you can if you want, but in Acts chapter 1, Jesus at this point has completed his earthly ministry. He's died, been buried, raised, shown himself alive for 40 days. But Judas, one of the original 12, of course, betrayed him. And now they are going to choose a successor to Judas. And in Acts chapter 1 is recorded the 11 now gathering to say, how do we choose and who do we choose? And one of the criteria for choosing a successor to Judas to be part of the apostles, the 12, was it someone who had to have been with us the entire time so that he can be a witness of these things. They chose a man named Matthias. Paul, who became an apostle later, you have the twelve. You guys have heard me say, when you're just called the twelve, you're in a pretty good group. You know, if I say the fab four, you know, those of you who are old enough know who I'm talking about. You know, if, you, if you're pretty famous, if you can just go fab four and you know who people are talking about. In the Bible, they're just called the twelve. These are fairly unique people because they had these unique qualifications. They had been with him, they had seen him, and they were chosen by him to witness and then to give testimony. And Paul later becomes one of these witnesses as well, the apostle. That's why we call him the apostle Paul. But how did he see him? Well, he saw him later in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus, and Jesus appeared to him, and you all remember that story, in a blinding light. And he spoke with him and he was converted. And Paul, in defending the fact that he's really an apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1, Paul says, am I not an apostle? And then says this, have I not seen the risen Lord? You see, in order to be an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Lord. And that's why Paul refers to himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as an apostle, but one born out of due season. 
Meaning, I'm an apostle just like they are. I have seen the risen Lord. I meet all the qualifications. But I became apostle, an apostle after they did. Now, Christ has chosen these witnesses to give testimony to what they saw. Peter is one of those witnesses. He saw the Lord risen later, but prior to that, he had the privilege along with James and John to see the Lord glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so he can say, this is not a made-up story. And then he can say this in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. If you have it opened there, verse 19. Peter says, we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Now, notice what he's saying there in verse 19. We have the word of the prophets, and now that word spoken by the prophets, that there will be this one who will come, and he will, he, will, he will die, but there will be the glories that will follow, verses 10 and 11 of that chapter. And the prophets spoke of that, and now we have that made very certain, literally, because now we have seen it. So we have the word of the prophets, you have the witnesses, and I am now giving you testimony of what I have witnessed, and I'm writing it, I'm writing it down for you. In something called, look at verse 20. Understand no prophecy of, and notice this word, Scripture. You see, I'm a witness, and I'm giving testimony, and I'm giving testimony in something called Scripture. Script. The Greek word is graphe, graffiti. It's written down. It is testified to in writing by the people who saw it. So where are you going to go for your info? Go to those guys. Go to the guys who were chosen to be witnesses and then who give the testimony of what they witnessed in what they wrote down in something called Scripture. You want to know what hell? Is there a hell? Go to Scripture. You want to know if there's a heaven? Go to Scripture. You want to know who goes to either? Go to Scripture. You want to know what either of them is like? Go to Scripture. If you have an opinion about anything, go to Scripture. Are we, are, are we not people of the book? And yet, how often do we derive our opinions and our notions from sources other than Scripture? So let me give you just a couple of other passages. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 11... Acts 17.11. The Bible there commends a group of people in a city called Berea, the Bereans. And it says there that the Bereans were to be commended because they, and here's what it says, they searched the Scriptures every day. With eagerness, it says, they examined the Scriptures every day. And here's what they were examining the scriptures for. This is what it says. To see if what Paul had said was true. We're not taking Paul's word for it. We're going to the scriptures. 
every day to see if what Paul said is true. And Paul's good with that. Paul's fine with that. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, if we or an angel from heaven, and we, including me, Paul, preach to you any other gospel than that which you received, let him be accursed. Please, by all means, says Paul, check out what I say. Against the standard of the word, the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus and his word contained in Holy Scripture. Last passage. Famously, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And all Scripture, notice the word again, same word, as Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20, all graphe, all the sacred writings are useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God, verse 17, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Dear friends, every good work. We are people of the book because the book is sufficient. Because the book has the information that I need for every good work. I don't need to go to some outside source. I don't need to go to some marketing thing to find out about what heaven is and is there a heaven and what is it like. I go to the book. And I go to the book because the book contains the testimony of the witnesses to what the Lord Jesus Christ chose them specially to see and then to write down. Page 57, then, in your notes. So, anybody else, like, warm? Well, it's what you get for complaining about how cold it was a month ago. <laughs> no, really, we didn't do that on purpose. You want, it, you want it warmer? We'll give it to you warmer. We didn't do that. It's just especially warm outside, one... And we have been talking to our friends, right? And trying to get them to set the thing and turn the air on and all that stuff. So it's an ongoing battle trying to do that. It's one of the downsides to being a tenant uh, rather than the, than the owner. Uh, I'm going to move on. We only have 10 minutes left. But, uh, but just bear this in mind. There are disadvantages, clearly. You have to take stuff down. You have to set stuff up. It's too hot. It's too cold. There are advantages as well. Okay, there are advantages, believe it or not. You say, really, name one. Well, I could name you a bunch. We don't have to maintain this building. We're not, we, the utilities, we don't, we don't cover all that. We have a very reasonable rent rate here. So there are advantages. Here, here's another and bigger one. Nobody confuses what the church really is when you meet in a school. See, the church is not and never will be a building. It's us gathered in the presence of the Lord. Now, we're still trying to find a building. As a matter of fact, just Friday we were looking at a building. And so we are continuing to do that, and we'll see what, go we'll see what goes. Okay? And as soon as we have something to go, we'll come to you. In the meantime, you know, wipe off the sweat, and we'll do the best we can. <laughs> okay? So I'm hot up here too, so let's hurry. Yes? Um, Bonnie says you should take your jacket off. Um, okay, we only have we only have uh, we only have nine minutes left, 
And rather than me being called out in front of everyone, <laughs> I will, uh, but I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that advice next time. How's that? All right. Page 57. What is heaven? Let's start with what the Bible says about heaven. It's a familiar term. When the Bible speaks of heaven, there are three places that could be in view. The atmospheric heaven, and that's where the rain comes from, the clouds are, and where the birds fly. And then there is, in that next paragraph, the second heaven, that's the planets, or what we would call outer space, and you see the Bible speaking of that. But then there is the third heaven, and that's what most of us mean when we, we talk about heaven. It's the dwelling place of, of God. And that's what we're speaking of then in, in this lesson. Now, where is heaven, page 58? Well, you have a number of verses given to you there that indicate that heaven is the, it's above, outside of, atmospheric and planetary heaven, and it is above. And you have a number of times where heaven is referred to where you have someone descending or ascending toward heaven, and thus the reason that we conclude that heaven is, heaven is above. But that last paragraph, middle of page 58, heaven is located somewhere in relation to all of this, that is, all of the universe that we described there, but outside of it. Yet in spite of that great distance, Christ could say to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. So where is heaven? It's outside of the first and the second heaven, that is, the atmospheric, the planetary. It's the abode of God. It is above. That's all the Bible teaches us. But what's, what is in heaven? And you might scratch out what is in heaven and put the word who is in heaven. Because you see, the thing that's most important about heaven is not what's there, but who's there. And, and friends, that's the thing that we, if you grasp nothing else other than me beating on the fact that you should go to the Bible for stuff, grasp that and then grasp this. Heaven is about Jesus being there. And it is not about your mansion over the hilltop or my mansion. It is not about how cool it looks, although it will look really cool. It is not about all of that. It is about the fact that Jesus is there and we will be with him. And we will be freed from all of the difficulties of life in a fallen world. So who is in heaven? Our Father and our Savior and believers. It is the place of our inheritance. It is where our citizenship is even now, says Paul in Philippians 3.20. It is our ultimate destination, top of page 59. Our master is there, and it is where we should be laying up our treasures, even now, says Jesus. Now, what is heaven like? The Bible talks a lot about heaven, but does not give a full description of heaven. Now, why is that? You know, God hasn't said, I, so I say, I'm just speculating. But I, do, I speculate that the reason that God has not said more about heaven is because he does not want our focus to be upon all the stuff of heaven. He wants our focus to be upon Him as our ultimate reward, and He wants our focus to be upon what He has called us to do now, motivated by the fact that we'll have that ultimate reward, to be sure, but to be about my Father's business here and now. So the Bible does not tell us all that we would like with regard to a full description of heaven. But in heaven there is the throne described in Revelation chapter 4, Bottom of page 59, the throne is the focal point of heaven. Its occupant is God. And again, heaven is more about who is there than what is there. Very bottom of page 59, there's no temple in heaven. 
which is God himself. John says in Revelation 21, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. There's no need for a place to go to worship God because we will worship at his feet. And then page 60 talks about a number of the aspects of, of heaven, some of the materials that John says will be part of the new heavens and the, and the new earth. It will be an unbelievable place, really unfathomable uh, for us ultimately. But then page 61, what are you going to be like? What are we going to be like in heaven? Well, you will be perfect, free from sin. You'll have a perfect spirit. You'll have a perfect body. So the Bible teaches that we are all, we were made of two components, a material component and an immaterial component physical and spiritual. Both physical and spiritual will be reunited in heaven, body and spirit. When Adam was created out of the dust of the ground, God made his body, but then God breathed into him the breath of life and he became, you remember, a living soul. And so Adam was made with a body. Adam was given a spirit. I have a spirit. I have a body. I am a soul. And both spirit and body will be united in heaven, and both will be perfect. So, no decay, no sickness, no sin, no dying. So what will we be like then with those, those bodies? Will we be known? Well, take a look at uh, page 62. Middle of page 62, there will be others in heaven, of course. Angels will be there as well as other believers. We will probably know at least some of them. Consider David apparently thought that he would recognize his son. Christ spoke of eating and drinking with his disciples in the kingdom. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will be identifiable according to Matthew 8. Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration had maintained their identity after years of being dead. That passage that we read, Moses and Elijah show up. And they look like Moses and Elijah. And you remember Jesus was raised, and after Jesus was raised, he ate with his, his disciples. He had a body that could be, could be touched and that he could be identified. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 with regard to the resurrection body, it is like a plant that goes into a ground or a seed that goes into a ground, and each of these seeds is of a kind that produces a particular and, here's importantly, identifiable crop. And so you will be known as you're known. You'll look better. You'll feel better. You'll last longer. And you won't sin. But you will be you. What will you do as you in this perfected body with this perfected spirit in heaven? Page 62. The key thing I want you to get out of what we will do in heaven is on page 63. There's a whole bunch of stuff listed there, but you know most people think what we will do in heaven really isn't all that exciting. It's just, I mean, look, I can barely, you know, you're saying to yourself, I can barely stand an hour and 15-minute worship service, let alone an eternal worship service. That's what we think, you know. An eternal church service. Yeah. You know, I hope they get the air conditioning fixed. 
but that's what we think about. You know, war, worship, we think of the worship hour, and we're just going to be worshiping God forever. And, you know, I'm sure it'll be great, but wow, really? And the Bible says all of the stuff that's listed on page 63, including last third of page 63, in heaven we will reign with Christ. I want you to catch this, that in heaven we're going to do stuff. We're going to serve the Lord our God. We will not just passively be floating around in this sort of disembodied existence. Remember, we're embodied, spirit and body. And in those bodies, we are going to serve the Lord. We will be actively serving the Lord. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us all the things that we will do in service to the Lord. It tells us some of them. But lose the idea that we're just sort of floating around there in one big, eternal, boring kind of church service. And then the last page, page 64. Heaven is the great hope of every believer in Jesus Christ. We do not live for this world. We understand that it's passing away with all of its desires. And so we look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, friends, do you see that? We do not live for this world. Three weeks from today, I'm starting a series called The Pursuit of Happiness. And that is going to be about what we live for. And so I encourage you to come. And I encourage you to be challenged as I challenge myself about what you're living for. That's what the series is going to be about. What have we centered? Our, and we have centered ourselves on good things to the expense of the best thing. Did you all hear that? We have centered ourselves on good things, but at the expense of the best thing. And we look for happiness in these otherwise good things, and we fail to find it. Happiness is found in focusing on the best thing, and I want to lay out what that is. And so I encourage you to be with us three weeks from today as we look at that. We do not live for this world. Middle of that page, this reward should motivate us to live for Christ then in this life regardless of what might come into our lives. And that's why Paul can say, as we have listed for you there, that our tribulations and our difficulties in this life are momentary and they are light. Momentary light afflictions. Your, your circumstance, your trial, seems to you like the worst thing that could possibly happen. It is not. Whatever it is, it is not. And compared to the reward of heaven, it is temporary, that is momentary. And compared to the great weight of glory that we will inherit, it is also light relative to that. Last paragraph and we're done. But heaven is not for everyone. It is for those who come to Jesus Christ for rescue, deliverance, salvation from sin. Apart from faith in Christ alone, there is no hope of heaven. We are going to conclude by praying, as we always do. As you do, dear friend, ask the Lord if you have come to Christ, ask the Lord to help you to be someone who is focused on Scripture as your source for information about heaven, about hell, about everything. Thank him for the fact that we have this blessed hope of eternity with him in his presence. Heaven is about who's there, not what's there. And if you've never come to God through Jesus Christ, I encourage you to do that in this sacred moment. 
We're going to bow our heads, and I encourage you to acknowledge that heaven is not your home because you are not fitted for it. We don't fit ourselves for it. He fits us for it. And he does that by clothing us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ so that because we have his perfection now, we can stand in the presence of a holy God. Without holiness, says the Bible, no one will see God. How do I get this holiness? Jesus has it. And he gives it to you when you come to him. The payment he made for your sin is applied to you. The righteous life that he lived, absolutely perfect, is applied to you so that you can stand in the presence of God in heaven forever. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for these moments to be able to be reminded of the priority of your word. It's the priority because it's your word. It is what you have spoken. Oh, Lord, help us to, to, to not fall into the trap of believing that we need supplemental materials to tell us about what you have spoken on. Because it is your word, it is fully authoritative. Because you are our creator, you know all that we need, and therefore you can give us a word, a book, Holy Scripture, that is all sufficient. There is no detail that you have missed. All that I need, I have in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the word that he has given. Thank you that you tell us not all that we might want to know, but you tell us all we need to know. And you tell us about yourself and ourselves, and you tell us about heaven. Thank you for what you have told us. You have told us enough so that we know that it's real. It is the place where you are and the place that we will be with you. We look forward to that. Surely come quickly, Lord Jesus. In the meantime, though, help us, Lord, to be motivated by standing before you one day and looking forward to hearing the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to be about our Father's business in the here and now. And I pray for anyone here who came into this room without the hope of heaven, that it's becoming theirs now by virtue of a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your infinitely worthy and valuable sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, covering all of our sins, past, present, future. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you alone among humanity perfectly fulfilled the law of our holy and righteous God and that we can have that perfection given to us when we come to you. I pray that some are calling out now for rescue from deliverance, for deliverance that only he provides. Go with us this week as we celebrate this holiday. We ask you to grant us safety. Help us to be your ambassadors as we witness for you with our lives and our lips and bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.